workers, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I give you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even as one who is escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. I'm going to pray for Tim quickly as he comes up. And Father God, just pray for my brother Tim as he helps us to understand your word, and as he applies it, um, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit to us, um, so that we can receive it in our hearts and so that it will build us up, so that it will encourage us, rebuke us, change us, and mold us to be more like you. Amen. Thanks, Lee. Um, as he was reading that passage, as Lee was reading that passage, you may have heard a couple of kind of common symbols or metaphors or images that Paul uses. So one is kind of working in terms of like working on a farm, agriculture, you might call it. The other is building. Okay, so handy kind of work. And there's a problem with that because I'm probably the worst handyman in the world. And I'm, I mean that quite literally. Um, I'm useless. So if you guys need your cars fixed, you know, your differentials replaced, I don't even know what a differential is. Um, your gearbox fixed, if you need a wall painted, 
if you need your tree mended, I don't know, whatever fix, I, I'm really not the guy to go to. Um, just a heads up, you probably knew that about me, you probably guessed that about me, but I'm just confirming that reality. I'll, I'll give you a bit of a story from my own life. I, um, I went to school in the Shire, as most of us here did, maybe not all of us, maybe that's a little bit assumptive, but I went to school in the Shire. My old man was a teacher in the Shire, and I remember as a Year 7 kid, um, walking into, we called it woodwork, I think they call it TAS now, but it was called woodwork or industrial arts in my day. And the problem with having a teacher in the Shire who's your father is everyone knows him. And I remember when I was a year seven kid walking into my woodwork room, the, the teacher said, are you Bob Foskett's son? That's my dad, by the way. And I said, oh, yeah. And you can see he kind of had expectations about my capacity working with wood and metal and all that sort of stuff just from the fact that I was my father's son. And I remember it quite well. One of the first things we had to do was build like this kind of, this box. I guess it was like a wooden box. And he just sort of, this is my teacher, he just sort of looked at my, my job, if you can call it that, and he just sort of shook his head and looked at me and looked down, looked at me and looked down and just shook his head. I've got no idea. I'm not handy. I'm not good with building stuff. Um, I wonder if the church in Corinth was a little bit like that. They didn't seem to prioritise working with their hands, like building stuff. They seem to even sort of look down at them. And maybe they were a little bit like me. They sort of thought of themselves as, as intellectuals, or they like to read books, and they like to speak in flowery language and talk about books that no one's ever heard of, kind of like me, right? And I think Paul's quite deliberate here in using these kind of images to talk about the church. I think he's using deliberate sort of work, sort of labouring sort of focused language to make his point, because they think it's probably beneath them. And he's saying, no, this is what actually the church looks like. And I think a good thing for us, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to cough a little bit tonight, I'm sorry about that. A good thing for us to remember is that church, as it's presented in this passage in 1 Corinthians, is probably a little bit different to what we might imagine. It's a little bit different. And I think it's certainly different to what the church in Corinth imagined. We've got to ask this question, what does it mean to be God's church? What does it mean? Have you ever really thought about that? What does it mean to be God's people here in Gosport Street in Cronulla? We're talking about God building his church, and that question is key to that. What does it mean to be God's church here? What does it mean for established church? Let's, let's really drive it home to our experience. Obviously, the church, or the building here, the work, the farming going on in Corinth has some issues. All right, so how's it going? That's the way I'm going to sort of focus in, okay? Talk about this idea of work. Unfortunately, I didn't get organised and put my stuff on the board. The board, that's the teacher in me, sorry. Um, I say that all the time, apparently. I mean, I mean the screen, this big thing behind me. So you're going to have to follow on your Bibles. That's probably a good thing. All those little sheets slash handouts that you have. Okay, please follow along. Um, the first thing I'm going to try and talk about, well, the first thing I think Paul talks about is the idea of problems in their work problems. What's he trying to highlight? Well, there's some issues in their, in their work. First one, look what he says here. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. So hopefully you're remembering a little bit about what he's been saying in the first couple of chapters, how they love to think of themselves, this church in Corinth is uber-spiritual, spiritually enlightened, intellectual, smart, powerful, important in the world. And yet Paul says this, I can't address you as people who actually live by the Spirit. Okay, that's referring to what he said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, chapter two but he uses this phrase, you're actually people who are still worldly. In other words, you're not using kind of Christ, a, vision, a Christ vision of the world and the church, you're actually using the world's vision of the church. You're worldly. And again, mere infants in Christ. They're talking about their work in the church. They're infants. They love to think of themselves as mature, 
and profound and brilliant spiritual heavyweights. And he's saying, actually, you're immature. And he goes on, he kind of turns the screw, doesn't he? Verse 2, I gave you milk, not solid food. How's that for a smack in the head? He's saying you're kind of like babies, spiritually speaking. For you were not ready for it yet. Indeed, he didn't say that's a past tense thing, you're still not ready. Okay, love to think of themselves as mature and knowing what's going on. And he's saying actually the exact opposite. And he goes in, and sorry, I'm just going to actually just push into the text here because it's so important. He gives a bunch of reasons. He says, you are still worldly, using the world's logic, not, the, not Christ's logic. And then he gives evidence for that. Since there is jealousy and quarreling amongst you, are you not worldly? That's evidence of their worldliness. Are you not acting like mere humans? Now, that's a funny phrase, isn't it? Mere humans. You go, well, I'm a human, you're a human, I assume we're all humans here. I, I'm going to make that assumption. You guys can correct that later if that's not the case. We're all humans. What's he actually saying here? Well, the word he uses here could also be translated kind of as flesh. You're of the flesh. Okay, they love to think of themselves as almost on this spiritual plane that was above everyone else. He's actually saying, no, you're not making decisions and and thinking by the spirit. You're actually working from the flesh. That's what he's kind of talking about there in verse 3. And he says the same thing. Remember how he said this kind of similar in chapter 1? Where one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely human beings? Again, not working from the spirit, working from the flesh. So how is their work going? Well, there's some issues there, eh? Clear issues. They love to think of themselves as hyper-spiritual, as mature, as intelligent and wise. And the truth is, they weren't spiritual. They weren't mature. Indeed, they were babes or infants. And they weren't intelligent or wise. We see that later in the chapter, don't we? Indeed, that's not even the point. Just look at the, the, the ego here, the lack of self-awareness. I read that and I think, my goodness, do I see myself in the church in Corinth? I probably do. I probably do. I probably assess church, our church, but even the bigger church, kind of along similar lines. I look for for influence and power, power in this kind of influential sort of sense. I look for people who kind of seem like they have it all together. And I wonder if that's what Paul's saying. Actually, that's not the way it's supposed to be. I think his critique applies to me as well, just as much. I was reminded of this. I'm working my way slowly. There's a book by a lady called Jen Brown. It's growing yourself up. I don't know if you've heard of it. If you ever want a brutal read that makes you feel horrible about yourself and your lack of maturity, read this book. It's a great book, but it's not an easy book to read because it makes you see things in yourself that maybe you don't really want to see, your lack of maturity in certain ways. And I think one of... She has a lot of ideas. When I think one of her ideas would be... Oh, the way to, and it's a bit of a paradox, but the way to maturity is actually seeing that actually you do need to grow up. There's areas in which you are incredibly immature. So the way to be mature is to realise that you're actually kind of immature. And I wonder if that's Paul's, what Paul's kind of driving into here. This church in Corinth had this inflated idea of themselves, which is not reality. They need humility. They need to realise who they actually are, spiritually speaking. Um, another story. Um, I remember when I went to SNBC... Uh, I studied at a Bible college. Maybe you guys don't know where that is. It's in the inner west. It's where I studied to do kind of theology slash Bible college, all that sort of stuff, where I learned to read the Bible, basically, in the way to do pastoral work. I remember being so jazzed about the type of people you'd hang out with, you know, spiritual dynamos. These guys are going to have it switched on. They're going to be amazing. They're going to be godly. It's going to be this kind of heaven on earth. And then you get there, and after a month, you go, my goodness, look at the way people act, even in Bible college. These supposed spiritual heavyweights. Well, it's just 
And I'm not trying to sound nasty about SNBC in particular, but it's just the reality. The path to, a, to maturity is really kind of understanding that we actually have a lot of area in which to grow. And likely that's kind of Paul's second point. He realigns their work. That's the second idea um, that I think Paul pushes into. And I think a word to sum up what he's trying to talk here about is, is humility. He's trying to reinforce this idea of humility. Look what he says here. So he realigns their work. Firstly, he, he kind of, just putting my notes here, he finds problems in their work. Secondly, he realigns their work. Look what he says in verse 5. It's amazing what he says here, the humility involved in this. So what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? The next word's amazing. There are only servants. Now, that's a really strong word. Sometimes we read this as servants, but that could easily, easily just be as translated, depending on the context and the words around it, as slaves. Basically, he's saying we're kind of servants or slash slaves. Slaves is probably too strong, but basically they're not people with a lot of power or influence. And he goes on. Remember, he's applying this logic to himself. So he's not just saying you need to learn this. He's applying this to himself and to Apollos, another key figure in the New Testament. He goes on, only servants through whom you came to believe. Who Who gets the credit? Well, it's God, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. He says, I planted the seed, perhaps he evangelized, perhaps he planted, he spread the gospel, he did the initial work. And he says, Apollos watered it. So Apollos was known as a preacher, maybe he pastored, he shepherded, he preached, he taught, he taught, taught, told other people the gospel. Look what he says here, it's kind of astounding. But God, God has been making it grow, it's God. So not even Apollos, not even Paul, it's God. And he goes on, and again, I think he gets stronger as he goes on, verse 7. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants, the one who waters. And notice there's no names there as well. Okay? Have one purpose. They will each be rewarded according to their labor. And basically, he uses this image, verse 9, they are co-workers in the work, in God's service, in God's field, in God's building. It's about God. God's the one who makes this happen. It's God, it's God, it's God. And even Paul applies this to himself. It's astounding, the humility it would take to say that. Paul had any, probably more reason than anyone to actually boast here and to talk about the things that he's done. And he always points to God. Now, we think about church in these sort of ways. We think, I do. Sorry, I shouldn't say we. I should say I. We, we tend to think in terms of kind of Christian celebrity, don't we? And even in our kind of little microcosm here in the Shire and the churches, you know, there's churches that are kind of big and flourishing, at least in a kind of material sense, and there's other churches that seem struggling. And often that's sort of centered around people and personality. But I think if we actually take what Paul's saying here seriously, it's not actually about this person or that person or this preacher or that preacher, this leader or that leader. It's actually about God. It's God's field. God's service, God's building, it's God. Bit of an illustration, I went to, uh, a lot of illustrations here. In Queensland, I went to a conference with a few people from Established, and we heard a really prominent speaker, I'm not going to say who he is, but um, amazing speaker, great speaker. I was challenged and, and built up and encouraged by what he had to share, great speaker. It was amazing though, like, after his sermons, nearly every time, there was, I'm not going to say fanboys, because there was ladies and women, women and, and boys as well, gentlemen as well, but all these people just sort of got up there and there was people taking selfies with him and people getting signatures and stuff like that. And I remember thinking, that's kind of odd. Like Christian celebrity is itself kind of odd, isn't it? The idea that we sort of 
Well, the Bible sort of says it's about God and God's the one who works and God's the one who makes it grow. And yet we put so much importance on this teacher or that preacher. And you can put in your own little name, whoever you listen to on your podcast, wherever you go and see in conferences. It's God, isn't it? I wonder what that does for us spiritually. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Please don't misunderstand me. And that person who I spoke about would actually say, go and listen to your own speaker. Prioritise the work in their own local church. Don't listen to me. Listen to your own preacher. I'm not trying to critique him in particular. But we have this tendency. And then we come to our own church, you know, and we hear our own preachers. I have to listen to Tim again. You know, he's going to get up there. and What movie is he going to quote? What old school movie is he going to quote? What bad jokes is he going to say? Was, I'm, I'm, my jokes are amazing, by the way. Top, top quality. Yeah, this guy needs a wash and a shave and a haircut. That was a good joke. That was funny. You have to listen to this guy. I, I want to go listen to the Uber apostle. I want to listen to him. But it's actually kind of denying what Paul's saying here, isn't it? We go for the glossy. I know I do. We go for that which seems like it's impressive in a worldly sense. And we're buying into the logic of Corinth in this church. Speaking of films, I'm going to quote Lord of the Rings as I often do, but all that glitters is not gold. That's a quote from Lord of the Rings. This is also from Shakespeare, by the way. So true. So true. He also gives us a way to test the work. Test the work. He goes on, verse 12. <clears throat> if anyone builds on this foundation using gold and silver, uh, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. He goes on, it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, um, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. And so he's talking here about this idea of building and he uses kind of six images. And I don't know if he actually gives a lot of sort of explanation, just sort of throws it out there and kind of makes it up to you to make what sense of it. This is going from verse 12. He talks about gold and silver and costly stones, wood, hay or straw. I've done a little bit of reading and basically the only difference between kind of the two groups is that the first three resist fire, the, second, the last three don't. So they burn up. I think that's one of the main distinctions. And so gold, silver and costly stones resist fire and wood and hay and straw burn up. And basically he's saying that these things will be judged according to their merit on the day. This is the judgment day. And basically he's putting the worth of these, these ministries, this sort of stuff in God's name, in the hands of God. God's the one who's going to judge. God will judge. It will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the quality, whether it's going to burn or whether it won't, of each person's work. Um, so there can be good building... And there can be not so good building. There can be building that actually will withstand the judgment of God and God will honour, and there will be building that won't. So there's going to be church, which is according to God's plan, and the church that is not. There's heaps of examples of kind of shoddy building. I was reading an article the other day about solar panels. Apparently it's a big scandal. Um, the government gives subsidies for solar panels. Apparently you can get one on your house. I don't have a house, but if you did, you get a solar panel on your house, and, you, and the government will subsidise it almost to the extent where it almost starts to pay for itself. It's quite, quite cool, and it's a good idea. We need solar panels, for sure. But more and more, there's like these um, kind of inquests going into the work. Apparently, they're cutting corners, and the workers are doing all sorts of dodgy stuff. 
Um, so there's a danger that the work is not good, but that's the way it is with church. But I think there's something we need to notice, that it is God who judges, God who assesses, and God who rewards. Paul's putting this firmly into the hands of God. God's the one who makes the judgment. God, 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 God. Because we can look at other churches and ministries and say, oh, well, they're building of hay, they're building of hay and straw. Their stuff's not going to last. Well, it's not really up for me to say. It's really not. God's the one who's going to say. God's the one who's going to judge. I think this is mainly important for ourselves, but we can sometimes apply that logic to ourselves. I wonder if we're the harshest critique, critiquer of our own work. The harshest criticizer, because we can come to our church and maybe it doesn't look like other church plants that are the same age. Not the same numbers, not the same amount of finances, not the same kind of gospel yield in terms of people. And we sit here and we judge our work. But I think, actually, Paul's saying that God is the one who judges. It's God. It is God. And sometimes we don't actually know the value of what we're doing. We don't. There's stories of people, and you may think that you give a good or a bad gospel message, and then people, years and years later, say, oh, I heard what you said there, and I've changed my life. And you don't know. You thought it was terrible. God's the one who judges. I remember my first sermon... Uh, long time ago, I would have been about 25, and I was super nervous and got up there and sort of blundered my way through it, and afterwards people were really happy, they said the content was really good, apparently I fiddled with my sleeve the whole time, I still do that by the way. Um, anyway, I was really down about it, a lot of people said they loved it, I was super down about it, I basically thought I'd been a bit of an idiot out of myself, and I remember um, I was sitting down after the sermon, um, this is after church, and just feeling a bit nasty and not all that happy. And, and, and the pastor at the time, he's, he's actually passed away, but a guy called Ollie, sat down next to me. And I thought he was going to try and pump up my tires and tell me how good I was. And he actually kind of, in a very nice way, he kind of knocked me around, not physically, but he challenged my thinking. I was sitting there thinking, oh, woe is me, aren't I rubbish? And he says, it's actually not about you. You can judge your own work, but God's going to work through what you say and what you do in his own way. It's not, you can't judge that. It's not about you. Get over yourself was basically what he said. What if we need to apply that to church as well? Because we can get down on things and get frustrated, despondent. God's the judge. God will sift through the hay and the straw and the wheat and the, and the gold and the fine stones and the silver. It's God. And lastly, he frames work. He frames ministry work. He sort of takes them back to what they're supposed to remember. And look what he says here. I think the first thing he talks about this idea of a temple. So he frames it in this kind of grand vision of what the church is. Verse 16, the temple, this is the image he uses here. There's two images. Verse 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for the God's temple is sacred. And you together are that temple. So this is the church. God's spirit, God's very present is here. Think about the worth of that. Think about how important that, that is. It's not about someone getting up and talking about how good they are or showboating, flashing about their gifts, speaking in such a way that draws the attention to them. No, you yourself are God's temple. You're God's temple. You're a kind of uh, showpiece for the spirit and the work of God. That's the first kind of vision he reminds them of. Secondly, 
I think I'm going to skip over some stuff here because I've spoken about the wisdom before. I did that big talk on that last week. Um, I'm going to take us to verse 21. I hope that's okay. And he says this, the first idea of temple of God, the housing of the very spirit and presence of God. Secondly, he says this, all things are yours. Look what he says here, verse 21. Kind of astounding. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. And again, he goes on, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. He says it twice. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. I think this is a question of misplaced value. They think the church is there for their honour and their glory, not for God. And why would you busy yourself trying to seek fame and honour for yourself when actually in Christ everything's ours anyway? Misplaced value. An illustration for that, um, I have nephews, I have a whole bunch of nephews, but two of them are twins, they live just down in Willoughby. And something that infuriates me about my nephews is they have these really amazing um, earphones. Like these Bluetooth earphones. I know you know the type. They, they cost you like 400 bucks. And they're sort of Bluetooth and they do all sorts of fancy stuff. And I want a pair, but I'm not going to get a pair until for a little while. But they just treat them like they're nothing, you know? They don't understand what they have. They don't understand the value of these things. And they sort of throw them around and leave them on the floor and toss them around. I wonder if we do the same with the church, with our understanding of the church. Everything is ours. Everything is ours. We're co-heirs of all creation with Jesus. That's what the Bible says elsewhere. We're sons and daughters of the living God. Everything is yes in Christ Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, access to an eternal kingdom that will not perish or fade or die. That's the vision of church that Paul points us at here. Is that your vision of establish? Or is it a case of um, misplaced value? It's like we have a voucher for, for a free Big Mac when we have a multi-million dollar ticket sitting in our pocket. Yeah, so he's pointed out the problems in their work. Basically, they're being petty and selfish. He's pointed it out how he needs, they need to realign their work through humility, understanding who they are in Christ and how much they need Jesus to work through them and God to work through them. And he talks about how actually we answer to God through our work. He's the one who judges. And lastly, he frames their work with a better vision. Let's just bring it down to establish you know, we're in a funny spot, aren't we? You know, we're in a tricky spot. Maybe not the end of the world. I wonder if God's surprised, though. I suspect not. Sometimes we have a vision of church where it's going to be amazing, and it's going to be this, and it's going to be that, and God has a different picture. The truth is we're working hard, we're praying big, and yet we're so reliant on God building here, aren't we, in Cronulla? We're so, so so reliant. God builds his church. Hopefully I don't have to repeat that over and over again. It's God who builds his church. And it's not as if churches are some sort of cookie cutter where we do this and that and this and that and suddenly out comes the end, a nice healthy looking church. No, there's struggle and there's suffering and there's kind of mistakes along the way and at the end hopefully there's something that, that we can present to God and say this is our work and he can judge it as being good and we're so reliant we're so expecting that God will build here in Cronulla. That's my hope. It's my prayer. Hopefully it's yours as well. Let's finish as we pray. Dear Lord, just help us to, rem to remember how desperately uh, in need we are of your work and your spirit here in this place, Lord. Uh, breaking us any sort of uh, temptation to make this about ourselves.
breaking us any temptation to look for the glossy, um, to look for the superficial, to look for celebrity even. Help us to be so thankful for what you have done here in this church in Cronulla. And we pray and expect that you will continue to work and build this church in your own way here. And we thank you so much for the things that have happened over the last four years, but even the last year, the last week with giving and stuff. And we pray that that will continue.